Okay. Hi, Reema. How are you today? Hi, Mona Lisa. Okay. So, um, so let me give a brief introduction. So, what we are doing here today, for the sake of our viewers and listeners. So, this is a courage, grit, and determination podcast where we would be showcasing courage, grit, and determination stories. where you would learn from the vulnerabilities of human uh, spirit and how people persevere and overcome situations so today we have reema pande who has written a book on her father's journey and uh, and struggle with a physical uh, situation so we'll cover that uh, reema can you give a brief introduction and then i'll go ahead yeah thanks mona um so my name is reema pande i live in the boston area uh, currently i'm a healthcare strategy consultant by profession and uh, the the book that uh, we are going to talk about today is called his voice and his voice is a journey into my father's uh, mind during a time when he was uh, paralyzed uh, unable to speak after a stroke so it is a first person narrative of his thoughts and emotions uh you know during the two years he lived after a very debilitating stroke okay so we'll go into the detail for the viewers let me introduce myself i am monalisa gupta i am a product manager by profession and pro bono i wanted to start a podcast on courage grit and determination stories so this is the first episode with reema pande here who has very lovingly agreed to be on the podcast and uh, we'll go through uh, her journey and understand what we can take away from the journey and how the human spirit triumphs all the odds uh over to you reema so uh, like you talked about your father's stroke um so can you explain when did this happen and uh, what was the situation and uh, then the primary caregiver role uh absolutely so first thank you mohi so for having me here and i wish you lots of good luck for this podcast uh, i know you said you this pro bono and it's and that is absolutely wonderful and i am so happy to be here as your first guest uh so talking about uh, my father's uh, stroke so this happened uh, you know many years ago around 2010 uh he was completely fine in delhi and uh, one fine day i you know got a call saying you know he's feeling a lot of weakness in his legs and you know struggling to walk and uh, he ended up in the hospital i traveled uh, to delhi uh, to be with him uh, so he had two strokes that, and uh, so the first one he lost some uh, functioning in his legs but was otherwise fine uh, you know he had all his other faculties um, he could use his hands and so we he was recovering from that you know that we were trying to figure out rehab and therapy and how to take him home and uh, some of the adaptations you have to do in the house you know things like sourcing a wheelchair things that one doesn't you know that normally think about and uh, he had a second stroke um 
which actually was very, very devastating. And it left him completely paralyzed, neck down and unable to speak. And uh, so while he lo he'd lost his speech, he also lost his ability to communicate in any other way because he couldn't gesture and he couldn't you know, write or draw or do any of the other things which, uh, you know, would say, okay, so he couldn't speak, what could he do? So the only thing he could do was actually emote. And so he had a lot of emotion on his, uh, on his uh, face. And the, the two years I would say after that uh, were really an interpretation of his emotions and uh, trying, so anyway, to cut a long story short a little bit, uh, we took him home and, uh, you know, set him up in what, you know, currently in the U.S. is called a hospital at home type scenario or a nursing home at home, which is where you put a hospital bed, you have all the equipment. Um, and my mother was the primary caregiver. She was supported by really awesome, you know, family, mainly her siblings, uh, friends and others. Uh, also hired... Uh, um, an assistant who would be with him through the day because it was impossible for my mother to physically move him at all. And uh, so she took over, she was the primary caregiver. And what she did uh, was really, uh, which to me was, was huge, a huge learning was the way she handled it, the way she took it on, and you know that's kind of the courage part. And how you know during, during those two years, she created this like uh, what my book editor calls the circle of love and care, which uh, you know sounds a little bit uh, cliched. And uh, you know when I first read it, I'm like, okay, that sounds a little odd, but literally that is what it was. Uh, he was uh, the center of everything. Um, she kept, we all communicated with him, you know, in a natural way, people came and visited, there was, you know, everybody had tea with him, and even though he, uh, you know, everything was kind of one way in terms of communication, he was absolutely part of life uh, in the household, and uh, so that's uh, what, uh, you know, that's what she did, and then she, and she kept going. She was optimistic. She was determined. She was, uh, I, I don't know, she was just nonstop. And uh, so that's, you know, and I can definitely get into more detail. My role just to uh, define it a little bit was what I would call a secondary caregiver. So I traveled okay. back and forth very frequently during those two years. Um, roughly every two months, I would take about three weeks off from work and go down there uh, to Delhi. And um, and then during, when my kids had summer break, uh, we actually spent, uh, you know, their summer break there for two years as well. So my role was uh, helping with planning, um, assisting when I was there, obviously. But most importantly, I would say, you know, was support for the primary caregiver, which is absolutely critical, you know, helping her, feel empowered, feel confident uh, without always opposing my views uh, on the person who's actually carrying that load. And 
lastly, you know, this is, uh, I was, I think, the re research assistant, which is, uh, which sounds a bit odd, but when someone goes through a situation like this, uh, just reading about his condition, you know, medications, possible approaches, uh, potential opportunities for innovative treatment, I was exploring clinical trials, things like that. So, so did you also look at alternative therapies and like alternative medicines? Uh, actually, yes. Um, for very specific, uh, you know, for very specific reasons. And uh, so let me give you a, a kind of a picture of what, uh, you know, what, what his, would it be helpful to describe like a day in the life? Yeah, so basically, uh, what my next question would be to understand more uh, the emotions of your mother, how she yeah. was so optimistic, how she was nonstop, as you said. So yeah. my question would be that. So but uh, like, uh, I believe in alternative medicine, I believe yeah. in affirmations and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that is why I asked, did you explore alternative therapies? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when, in you, when you end up in a situation like this and you're, you know, undergoing a major healthcare crisis, you, you look at everything. You try right. anything. Right. Uh, literally. Also with, the, you know, standard medicine, uh, there is only so much, there, there was nothing that could be done, literally. Uh, you know, there was so much, according to the doctor, there's so much damage, there's, you know, it's, it was kind of a more of a, uh, you know, I don't know, maintenance situation, I guess. Uh, so and my... Uh, so, three, yeah, three, modern healthcare is more about maintenance and then, uh, yeah. then cure. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Modern, yeah. Modern healthcare is more about fixing problems. You know, right. if you have one problem, it's like, okay, you have this symptom, let's treat that. If you have this, let's treat that. And, uh, and... If there's nothing they can treat, they're not quite sure what to do. So, so he had some, uh, you know, so he did get some medic. He was under some medication. For example, he was under anti-seizure medication, which is you know modern traditional uh, anti-seizure medication, which we continued because you know you didn't want him to get seizures, and he did actually periodically get seizures uh, in the you know during those two years. Uh, you know, he had. Uh, let's say antacids every morning if you can call that modern medicine but that was pretty much it and uh, so my my family my mother uh, you know all of them believe a lot in homeopathy so um, for the anti-infectives he was actually on a, a homeopathic medication regime uh, he got homeopathy and uh, you know whether this is credit to the homeopathy or the the way he was taken care of, but during those two years, uh, with someone who's completely you know bedridden, unable to move on a catheter, he uh, did not have a single infection. Awesome. And uh, yeah. you know, if you ask anyone modern medicine, uh, they actually put you on very high dose antibiotics. Uh, you know, if you're on a catheter because they want to avoid infection. But so we were able to, uh, you know, do that without putting him on high, heavy antibiotics. Um, he also had physical therapy every day. 
uh, not because he could move his limbs, but we needed to just to keep, just to try and keep him, uh, keep his body as uh, as strong and you know uh, his muscles as alive as you can as we could. And uh, it actually surprisingly, even though the doctor said that there was nothing much that we had done, he had actually improved his physical uh, ability a tiny bit which is not, it wasn't much at all, it was very marginal, but at least, uh, you know, he did not waste away. Uh, I know this sounds horrible, but that's literally what happens, your muscles waste, you know, when you're in that condition. Um, the other thing which, uh, you know, towards, happened towards the end of those two years was, uh, so initially he was doing well over those, you know, well as in he was stable, you know, his, he seemed happy, but towards the end, you know, it seemed like he was losing, um, uh, losing hope. You know, you could see it on his face and his, you could see that he wasn't trying as hard, even though he couldn't actually physically try. You could, you know, when, when he got physical therapy, you could actually see that he was mentally making an effort. And that kind of went down. So towards the, uh, you know, the last couple of months, uh, my mom and aunt had actually even tried some Ayurvedic treatment. And uh, okay. which was, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, special, um, I think it was like a mud pack almost uh, that you, you know, warm the body and you apply it to kind of try and trigger some activity in the muscles and the nerves. And I think, you know, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm actually don't have strong views on, I, I respect all streams of medicine because I actually don't think we really understand the human body as much as we think we do. Right. And having been in healthcare, you know, uh, a lot of medications and treatments are uh, developed based on uh, experiments. Symptoms and, and yeah. yeah, yeah, but even Symptoms. the way they developed, it's like you know, you, you throw a bunch of compounds at something and then you do statistical trials to see which one might work, right? And yeah. if you get something that is statistically significant, you you know, it gets approved medication, right? And you can see it a lot in can like cancer drugs, for example, you see that a lot. Uh, you know, there'll be cancer drugs, which new drugs, which will prove that they increase uh, life expectancy by a month or something. They'll be able to statistically prove that. But that's on average, you know. So anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah so, I, I can respect all schools of medicine, you know. All so, you, so you and your family, you tried all forms of medicine, you tried all sorts of therapies so that he could get well, right? So uh, let's look at a different perspective. So uh, can you talk about how did your mother feel being the primary caregiver um, how did she find inspiration to be the primary caregiver and were there any weak moments when she felt that this is too much for her to handle? Yeah. So uh, let me start with the, you know, the key challenges of being a caregiver and then I can talk about how I, she managed it. 
So if you think about you know, the key challenges of caregiving in such a situation, uh, there's obviously the physical aspect of it, right? So in, you could be in a, there are different levels of disability and physical infirmity and me mental impairment. You know, in some cases, it could be just a person who just needs help with, uh, you know, some activities of daily living. And at the other end of the spectrum, in my father's case, he was paralyzed neck down. So anytime he had to be moved, uh, whether it's uh, from the bed to the wheelchair or back, which happened multiple times a day, uh, it was an event that required thinking, planning, and two strong people. So uh, physical caregiving was a big challenge. And he did have the ability... You know, so, so moving him and the fact that the, the major practical issue was that she could not move him independently. Um, another, um, you know, other things, of course, you know, he could eat, but he had to be fed, he could move his head, he had to be, you know, but he had to be careful about everything. And uh, there's a physical, there's physical caregiving, which can be uh, very overwhelming. And uh, the second, uh, I guess, uh, you know, if I was to bucket, it is, you know, kind of the mental load of managing these situations. Right. And that is the constant worrying. There's the no mental downtime. Uh, you, you know, the primary caregiver becomes the main advocate for the patient, especially someone who cannot communicate. And, uh, and this load is enhanced when the patient is a loved one, you know, with whom you had previously shared that mental load, like a spouse. Right. So this is someone who you talked to every day for 30, you know, or every time you needed something or had a question in your mind. Um, and so that load is enhanced because it's, uh, so caregiving in that sense becomes, you know, emotionally, it's about, it's constant anxiety. There's the grief and sorrow, which you cannot fully express. There's the loneliness and there's a pressure to stay strong and happy. Keep right. the patient's emotions positive, right? So, so that also takes a toll. And there's this inside, like I said, grief, sorrow, and helplessness. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, how my mother handled it, uh, first, you know, she had no question in her mind about where, you know, she just, she was, she assumed she was the primary caregiver. She was the spouse. And this was, you know, this was what she needed to do at this point. So there was no, uh, you know, no, no thought around okay, what should we do now? It's like, you know, we are going home and I will take care of him. And then it was more, what do, what do we need to help you take care of him? Um, I mean, she's naturally, I think, a very strong um, person. I think in her case, what gives her that uh, courage, grit, and determination is her is her belief in God and okay. prayer. Okay. That's what it is for her. And you know, you everybody is different, but in her case, that that's what it is. Um, she's always, uh, you know, she believes that you know. Uh, whatever happens we have to deal with it we have to deal with it positively we have to be uh, optimistic we have to make the best of it you know all those things that I had heard all my life I saw her channel in those two years and personify 
you know, when you're growing up as a child, you know, your parents say these things to you. Uh, but in this case, I, I saw it personified. Uh, in terms of weak moments, there were absolutely weak moments. Uh, never in front of my dad, of course, never in front of him. Uh, with, you know, she was always calm, happy, uh, normal, if that makes sense. Uh, you know that makes sense because being uh, being normal <laughs> is uh, important yeah, and it's hard it's hard yeah yes it was very normal that was my biggest learning you know because it's actually very hard and this was very obvious when you have people visit because most people get very awkward and uncomfortable when they're faced with someone like that uh, even to make eye contact or talk in a normal way um, you know, without saying things like, oh, how are you feeling to someone who can't actually, you know, answer you back. <laughs> so, so it takes, it takes, it's hard, you know, but she, she created that normal, normalness in the house. And because she did that, everyone followed, you know, everyone, we all kind of just, uh, you know, went with that. And we just kind of all absorbed that, um, in terms of weak moments, of course, she had weak. There were times when she would get, uh, you know, very, very hassled. Uh, uh, lots of times when she was very, very sad. Uh, but I think uh, for her, her, her support system, um, her sisters, her brother, her family, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying her family, including me, but in addition to me, it wasn't just me. Uh, there were people she could talk to, um, you know, when she needed to. I think that was that. That was the biggest, uh, uh, you know, her biggest uh, thing having that support system. Uh, so there's a, you know, there was a book I was, uh, re you know, I was reading a few. Uh, months ago, which talks about, which explores the lifestyles of the world's healthiest communities. And I'm forgetting the name of the book right now. Ikigai, Ikigai. Ikigai is, a, there's another one, it's called Blue Zones or something, I think. But this is someone. Uh, there is uh, one called Blue Zones also, yeah. I yeah. Like, yeah. So the author had done research on uh, the healthiest and happiest communities in the world. And okay. seven of them. And uh, so there were really, uh, you know, three whatever secrets to uh, their health and happiness. And it was, uh, you know, diet, uh, staying active. And the third one was a strong social fabric, a sense of connectedness. Okay. Um, and uh, that's, uh, you know, that she was able to do this literally because she had that connectedness. You know, she's the kind of person who also stays in touch with people. Uh, even sometimes when it's a one-way process, <laughs> and uh, and I think that helped in you know during that time. And, and staying connected is is also it takes effort. Uh, it takes it and, takes a lot of effort. I'm kind of that person yeah. who takes uh, the initiative on one side all the time. So yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's talk. Um, so we. Uh, in this podcast, we don't want to focus uh, more on the uh, 
physical aspects we just want to cover the emotions and how like people overcome them so we talked about your mother so we we'll next talk about the family and what prompted you to write the book and how did you feel when the book uh, released how was the response and all of that yeah um so first why the book um so during the two years that my father lived after his stroke uh, you know i often wondered what was going through his mind literally and uh, so the book is a first person narrative of his unspoken thoughts and emotions at least my interpretation of his unspoken thoughts and emotions during the two years he was bedridden and he was very thoughtfully dealing with the crisis where so he had lost complete control of his life so i would sit and think about how does one feel right when you're playing golf one day and a few days later you're somewhat bedridden and then a few weeks later you you're just completely helpless and uh, so it's a narrative of his current state in his voice and it's interspersed with memories of his key life key life experiences that shaped him as a person because um i would think about what's going through his mind and also think about what has given him what's given him the strength to be dealing with this in the way he is how is how does he look calm when you look into his eyes how does he look so calm and you know and what what where where does he find where is he found this strength that he's channeling is it in his past experiences in his childhood his family his relationships with his spouse with Uh, me of course um, and uh, other things uh, you know his work his uh, his you know his religion so also all those things are explored in the book but which is what kind of makes it a life story of sorts and uh, when i wrote it i didn't really mean for it to be a book at all it's it was more a therapeutic experience for me because uh, you know talking about emotion i it was an emotional roller coaster for me uh, a lot of um, you know mixed feelings of uh, of course there's the shock the sadness uh, that comes initially but there's also um regret regret is a big part right of i think at least for, for me it was a big part of this uh, regret at um everything from at don't think i know my father as well as a person as i should even though we were so close i think when you have a parent child relationship you always um look to that person as a parent not as a person if that makes any sense but you know you're uh, you it's always in the context of that relationship and at this point i started thinking about what was his life like you know beyond me and being a parent to me um and uh, i i guess i had a lot of uh, long distance guilt because i was here and um, so there was a lot of uh, regret you know we're talking about regret there was also the regret at you know did we do the right thing did we make the right decisions when he was in the hospital all that kind of stuff and you know his death even though we had two years to prepare um created a very giant vacuum in my life and that's when i started writing 
So I didn't actually write it while he was, you know, alive. This, there were all kind of thoughts swelling in my head. And I started writing it. I wrote it a couple of months, uh, I think within a couple of months after he passed away. And I didn't share that with anyone till um, 2020, the pandemic, uh, you know, everyone was home and I uh, took out the manuscript, whatever the e-manuscript, if you can call it that, and uh, shared it with a few people and decided to publish it. And the reason uh, was, you know, I'm sharing his story is to draw attention to the challenge, you know, challenges associated with aging, disability, the, the you know, physical, mental, emotional load of caregiving for people who are caregivers. And, you know, there are a lot of people who do caregiving in different scenario ways. And uh, also, you know, how important uh, it is to think about healthcare decisions holistically from the patient's point of view, because that was, uh, you know, one of the, one of our, you know, there's this concept of palliative care, which, you know, if you're interested, we can talk about. Uh, but it's, it's really about providing medical and care, you know, holistic care, not just medical care, and, you know, a bunch of pills, um, in a way that uh, uh, is focused on quality of care right. and comfort versus, uh, you know, just taking care of whatever issue the issues are. Getting and, a th- uh, like getting a therapist and somebody to talk to, somebody to take care of the emotions and all of that, right? Yeah, it's it's talking to the person. Yeah, because instead of assuming that you know, okay, he can't talk, and what am I going to talk to him about because he can't talk, <laughs> you know? So it's the uh, yeah, it's the physical care, it's the emotional nurturing, if you can say that. And, uh, and, you know, as, uh, as I have, uh, you know, somebody at some point asked me to distill my learnings, uh, you know, from this experience, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what are the key learnings for caregiving? And uh, that's when I, uh, you know, kind of uh, built what I'm calling this three, the three R framework. And, uh, you know, the fact that all those words start with R was like just a random coincidence. But really, you know, in my mind, the three key pillars or tenets of caregiving are uh, respect, resilience, and realism. And which, you know, kind of tie with your theme of uh, courage, grit, and determination. Um, I would say, you know, respect is is really important and it sounds very basic, but uh, you know, the caregiving in such situations can, can become so overwhelming, just taking care of the day-to-day stuff, the, you, you know, that it often flies out of the window. It's, uh, you know, it's very basic things like... Um, Don't take other person for granted. And, exactly, exactly. And and then take care of his emotions and like how is he feeling? Yeah. Then uh, basically consider that before doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Even take take care of his privacy. 
Right. Imagine right. that he still has a sense of privacy, even though he's helpless, right? Right, right. Don't assume that he doesn't. And that, that goes out of the window very quickly in such situations. Uh, because to me, as a person becomes more helpless, uh, you know, their sensitivity to everything said and done is probably getting more acute because he can't do anything. And and it's so it's all the more important to maintain the dignity of a person who's in a helpless state. Uh, so that that be positive, respectful, happy, uh, you know, treat them with love and respect. That's all, As, to the extent you can. And the fact that that happened for my father, I believe made him as happy as was possible given the circumstances. And so to me, you know, that's the first, uh, you know, tenet of uh, caregiving and maybe it's you know even beyond caregiving um there's a there's a quote that i uh, that you know stuck in my head there's a book called till breath becomes air by paul kalanithi and he was a neurologist who was diagnosed with a, a condition and he 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 wrote this book uh, sharing his perspective on becoming a patient with a uh, very poor prognosis of health. And he said, until I actually die, I'm still living. So just remember that. This person is still living, you know. And uh, so that's uh, that to me is the most important. And resilience is, uh, you have to work it with whatever life throws at you uh, without breaking down. And that takes an immense reservoir of courage and compassion to stay calm. Not- and lots of gut and lots of gut lots of guts and lots of grit like you know you said your world's falling apart right and you have to continue to push yourself to be loving to be patient um, you have to find your strength in some way th- that works best for you you know for some people uh, you know the I was in a conversation where they're talking about caregiver support and caregiver respite which is uh, give them a break from caregiving, which is very important. For me, but it depends on the person. Like for my, my mom, she didn't, didn't want respite. Every time you took her out of the house, she was even more stressed. And she would say, "I will take, you know, I will take a break in the other room, but I'm not going to leave the house." But that was her. For some people, they might need to take a break. They might need to, you know, find an alternate caregiver and. Uh, you know, go, go, leave the house, you know, do something different, recover, uh, you know, regain their strength, physical and emotional strength. So again, everybody's different, but, you know, we need, we need to find some way to build that resilience. And the last one is realism because, uh, you know, you can put in a lot of effort, but it may not yield the results one hopes for. And you have to still continue that effort, but we cannot fix everything. Sometimes you just need to manage to the best of our abilities and, you know, be hopeful and optimistic. And uh, um, and so, you know, because if everything could be fixed, uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, no king would ever die because they have the best of everything and, uh, you know, every possible care. And so realism is important. So respect, resilience, realism to me are the kind of the pillars of caregiving. And 
and the, the foundation of those pillars is relationships. We talked about that a little bit more, whether it's, uh, you know, spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, a cousin, a friend, it, it, you know, any part, anyone in the community that you're part of. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, going back to that book, uh, Blue Zones. Okay. That's, it's completely important. I'll definitely read all the books you mentioned. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy to send you a list. Yeah, yeah, to do share. Okay, so uh, Rima, it was lovely talking to you. Uh, I think it was a poignant journey and it cannot be explained in words and actually... Uh, Mm. I have some personal experiences as well. So I can identify with the caregiver situation and the ailment situation and the disability situation very well. So that is the reason why I started this podcast and why I wanted to talk about the human spirit. That is why we focus more on emotion because people can identify with that and learn something from that and don't feel disheartened. And because everything looks rosy on Facebook and uh, Insta and everything, right? So these yeah. are not the realities of life. So realities of life are very different from Facebook and Insta. So that's what I wanted to focus on. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was lovely talking to you and thanks for spending time. Thank you, Manalisa. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, hi, viewers. We are wrapping up the podcast for now. We'll be back with another episode in a time of a week or a 15 days as I plan ahead. Hope you liked it and hope you learned something from it. Thank you so much. Signing off. Bye.